Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. Now you can hardly look anywhere without hearing that we need a mindful approach, whether it's in eating or in education, whether it's in health. This week, our speakers take on the cult of mindfulness. Is it that we are discovering something which is actually important and valuable? Is it what society needs now as everything speeds up? With yoga retreats and meditation courses on the rise, is self-exploration the perfect antidote to modern life and a route to being at one with ourselves? Or is it merely used uh, as an instrumental way of fixing other things. Is that what we need to do? Or do we need to be more concerned about future? Do we have to think about the, the future consequences and the way in which we are directed to plan for and reason about things beyond the moment? Should then we be wary of the cult of mindfulness? What are we to think of the cases in which this has led to depression and even psychosis? Would we be better off in dealing with our anxieties through action instead? Providing you with the answers this week, we have author of The Buddha Pill, Miguel Farias, Buddhist teacher and broadcaster, Vishvapani Blomfield, and sociologist of religion, Linda Woodhead. We would love to hear what you thought of this episode of Philosophy for Our Time, so please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating. Tell anyone you know that might be interested, and of course, subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Back now to Barry C. Smith, who hosts this week's episode. Is it a mistake to think that self-exploration is always a good thing? So, Miguel, would you start us, please? Well, we all know that, of course, it is a mistake to think that self-exploration is always a good thing. There are people with narcissistic personality traits, psychopathic personality traits, who, when exploring themselves, realize that they take great pleasure by oppressing others, by being cruel to others. And, I mean, we have a, a very rich history throughout the 20th century which shows that some of these characters managed to be empowered and to be in front of countries and they're wonderful at oppressing people. And also, some th- I mean, similar things going on with religious extremism. Quite a lot of people 
explore themselves and find out that actually I have to do something violent towards others because I have had this epiphany. So it's clearly a mistake to think that this always leads to good things. But let's, let's stay with, um, with meditation, well, and psychology to the extent that we're talking about the psychotherapeutic model of meditation. Are these techniques and ideas being good to us? Well, I mean, we have had 100 years of psychotherapy and the world is getting worse, right? <laughs> this is the title of a book by, by the late Jungian uh, analyst James Hillman. And the point is, we have been in the West, I mean, particularly in, in countries like the US and the UK, we have been taught to believe in, in ourselves, in this kind of atomized, self-contained individual, which is always in need of something. I'm in need of increasing my self-esteem, my self-value, my self-resilience. So it's all about my journey, my needs, my healing. And, and it's not just an atomized self, it's like a kind of cosmic at myself because I feel empowered. I feel, I mean, if I'm spiritual, I feel that I'm sort of one with the universe. And, and this sort of heightened individualism has made quite a lot of interesting ideas of self-exploration, I mean, quite sterile. And I'm afraid that this is at the very heart of mindfulness as a kind of 21st century psychotherapy and secular meditation technique. And we now know historically, and partly sociologically, that this mindfulness has very little to do with Buddhism, um, I mean, South Asian Buddhism and other religions. But on the contrary, mindfulness is so popular because it's clearly a projection of our current beliefs and also our distrust of the past and our fear of the future. So we are only left with a sense of the present, the nowness, but even less than the present, as we are told to let go of it. So instead of embracing the depth of who we are, a self that exists in relation to the past, to the future, and to other individuals that live in the past, that have a past, present, and future, we are left in a kind of psycho-babble limbo with lots of words that mean nothing or can mean anything, really. They're twisted again and again. So it feels to me that the suggestion that we can be happier with ourselves by being the present moment and developing a sort of bare or pure awareness means above all one sad thing that, I mean, civilizationally, we've run out of ideas. Miguel, thank you. I think it's very clear where you stand there. <laughs> so, um, Vishvapani, I'm thinking you won't have the same view. Could you take it on, please? W what you said, I'd, I've heard before in the voice of Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche, who characterizes Buddhism as the expression of the last man, the last exhaling gasp of civilization. So a hundred, over 100 years ago, we had that characterization of Buddhism. And I don't accept it. The question of self-exploration is, again, it's not, I, don't, I don't recognize the characterization of mindfulness we've just heard. And my, my frame of reference is as a Buddhist. We don't really talk about self-exploration within Buddhism. We do talk about awareness, self-awareness. And the Buddha said, you can't have too much mindfulness. You can have too much self-exploration. You can have too much meditation. But mindfulness is a balancing faculty within Buddhist teachings. So that, that's my general uh, approach. 
and all this may need a bit of unpacking. But I, I don't really know how much value there is in approaching these things abstractly, you know, about being one with ourselves and self-exploration. So if I think about where my values come from, I go back to Kristallnacht on the 4th of uh, November, 1938. My father was walking home from uh, school and saw the synagogue burning and the Nazis laughing. He left three months later on a kinder transport train, came to Britain and spent his life as a Freudian psychoanalyst and as a social worker and training social workers. And those values are the ones that I inherited. It's both an idea of, of social change. We have to change society. You know, my father looked to Freud, and I inherited that sense that, you know, if we want to change the world, we need to change ourselves, and we need to, we need to change people. And I, I found that in Buddhism. I also found other things. I found a sense of community and, and an, an evaluation of ethics. So turning to mindfulness and, and the mindfulness movement, what really uh, galvanizes my interest is the, the strength of the connection that people make with it, how strongly it speaks to them, and how things that I do recognize as Buddhist teachings, actually, and Buddhist insights make a very direct impact on people. You know, I, have, I teach a lot. I teach in prisons, I teach the general public, I teach in hospitals, all sorts of places. I see people coming along with their confusion and and getting something. First of all, the capacity to calm down, and secondly, some insight into the, the, the world of confused thoughts and feelings and a sense of agency in relation to them. That's why I do this, and it's not the religion of the self. I don't recognize it as that. It's about becoming aware of our thoughts and our feelings. People fundamentally, on mindfulness courses, gain insight into their minds. And the, the, the key fact there is, for all that we might talk about the neoliberal self and so on and so forth, we very often don't recognize, we don't have the tools to recognize our mental states and our underlying belief systems. And we need ways to do that. That doesn't mean meditation alone, but meditation turns out to be quite a helpful tool for doing that. But I, I'd simply conclude with my, my, my general sense that this is a very potent force in society, precisely because it speaks to the, the needs that many of us have, and that's why it's growing. Thank you. Linda, you have four minutes to set out your position, please. Thank you. I'm going to start by uh, with a little um, anecdote that comes from Miguel's book. Miguel's written a wonderful book, I do recommend it, called The Buddha Pill. And in it, he talks about an experiment that's rather lovely, and I think it helps us get at one of the things that mindfulness can help with. Somebody called Timothy Wilson, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, carried out some studies to see what happened when you give people nothing to do except sit in a room with themselves for between 6 and 15 minutes. Most of the people who he made do this said that they didn't enjoy it at all. So he upped the ante a bit and he said that they had 15 minutes to sit in the room and do nothing but that or they could self-administer an electric shock, a very painful electric shock to themselves and they would be released from the task. 
and he found that 67% of men and 25% of women gave themselves at least one electric shock. <laughs> Some people find it so hard to sit still with themselves doing nothing else for 15 minutes. Would you find it that difficult to sit on your own for 15 minutes? Actually, I would at one time in my life, and I had a very, um, uh, for me, very important experience. I'm a researcher of religion, so I go around and talk to people and observe religious groups and so on. And I went to a meditation class, it was transcendental meditation. Perhaps you ought to just make a sidebar. Meditation is somewhat different from mindfulness. The transcendental movement that was very important here and influential from the 70s onwards was more about sitting quietly with a mantra to focus. Mindfulness can be, you know, rather than just going to the fridge to get the milk, you think about each step. You're mindful as you go to the fridge. Anyway, this meditation class, and it was TM meditation, uh, which I was doing for research, I found it profoundly life-changing because I realised I had been very frightened of sitting, in this case, for three-quarters of an hour with myself. And I had a wonderful, rather blissful experience of doing that, and it, um, it released me from that fear of myself. Are we more frightened of being alone with ourselves than we were in the past? Who knows? We haven't got the evidence. Are there more people catering to our ability, our, our, our desire to distract ourselves? Yes. yes. <laughs> capitalism and entertainment works that way, and it's brilliant at giving us constant distractions, and this is a carry-with-me-all-the-time uh, ability to uh, uh, not have to sit just with myself. So perhaps at this particular time in our society, mindfulness is particularly important. But one thing I've learnt studying religion my whole life is that it gives you a whole package of things. It gives you very, very powerful stories and symbols and everyday practices and rituals. The, the world religions gave you a kind of um, off-the-shelf package of all those things. Increasingly, we want to put together our own and our own personal stories become more important. But I think that we all, to have... Uh, uh, to have um, a meaningful life in which we know what matters to us and what doesn't. We all need all those things. We need the whole shebang. We need the stories. We need the ritual practices. We need the everyday, everyday practices. I think mindfulness means different things to different people depending yeah. on the context in which you put it, whether that's Buddhist, Jewish, or whatever it might be. And it's just one ingredient, and it will have different salience and effects, good and bad, depending on how you frame it in your own life-world narrative. Thank you. Thank you all for succinctly setting out your views. I mean, one of the things I think that comes out of that is the need to separate self-exploration, meditation, and mindfulness. They may overlap. They, they may come apart. We may see them as, as very different. But, but let's concentrate instead on, on meditation and whether meditation is uh, always benign or whether you think there are dangers in how meditation is conducted or even the, the lure and seduction of feeling that's going to solve our problems. Right. Can, we, can we deal with that? Yes. Well, I don't like to dramatize the idea that there's potential adverse events associated with meditation. But to say something about that and relating to what uh, we were talking about, we're moving I mean, along somewhat muddy waters. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about either a secular model or, or religion. Mm -hmm. Now, what we know is that 
I mean, all these rich religious traditions moving from Buddhism and Hinduism but down to, to Christianity, they have, I mean, various contemplative, meditative techniques. Uh, of course, the aims are clearly different, but these traditions do refer to the possibility of having a range of challenging, difficult experiences. Not all of them related to what we today would address as mental health problems, but clearly some of them do overlap with the possibility of having mental health difficulties. But l let me just step back a little bit about that. If we're talking about using meditation for genuine self-exploration, open-ended, deep self-exploration, I mean, if this is an open-ended journey, then you have to assume that you'll have to let go of some control because you don't know who you truly are beyond the superficial level. So it's almost inevitable that you're going to come across some difficulties. Now, the problem is, if you don't have the scaffolding <coughs> that Linda was talking about of the religious traditions, if you don't have a map that can help you navigate whatever experiences you're having, you can be left, I mean, in, in, in great difficulties. I mean, and one of the reasons, because there's lots of people learning meditation, but there's very few people who actually know what it means and how to do this properly. So without the scaffolding, quite a lot of people, uh, I mean, if they're having an experience of dissolution of the self, this can be really ecstatic for many people, but for some it's terrifying. Uh, there's a deep sense of loneliness and even psychosis associated with it. So this has happened to some people. We don't know exactly to how many, because over 99% of the scientific literature on meditation is interested in highlighting or exploring the positive effects of this. And I mean, this is a sort of sociological phenomenon, right? I mean, we're driven by the attempt to show that this is really, really good. Let me just finish by saying that the problem with having these um, secular psychotherapeutic models is also what kind of models of the mind are we subscribing to, right? So for instance, quite a lot of my colleagues who use um, mindfulness, and these days, for instance, in schools, they're using the idea that, well, by doing this, you're building mind resilience. It's like a gym to the mind. And actually, I think that's a really, really precarious model of the mind. And if you're doing proper meditation and you stumble upon these difficulties, actually, a more psychoanalytical Freudian model is perhaps much more of a realistic model than this kind of gym. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, so, so there are many things coming out of that. I mean, certainly we, we are able to have a clear division between self-exploration preoccupied with the self, if, if part of the, uh, the drive of meditation is the dissolution of self. But when you find people 
uh, traumatized or, or, or finding emotions welling up that, that are very painful and difficult to cope with, they already had a propensity right. to have that. So, so is, no, is it, no, it's, I, I agree with it's that. It's not yeah. that. Tell, no, tell me why no, not. No. Good. Um, there are two questions there. Whether people who have, I mean, a clear history of mental health problems, say recurrent depression, generalized anxiety, or trauma, traumatic instances, whether these people are more vulnerable. And we can say, well, yes, but actually, some models of mindfulness have been designed to help people who are psychologically vulnerable, right? Um, the other question is, of course, whether the literature can address this. And, and yes, there is a number of case studies, and if we look at these case studies, over half of them, over half of the people have had serious mental health problems while doing meditation, particularly intensive meditation. They do not have any sort of mental health problems. But again, to what an extent, I mean, we can say that we're not all vulnerable to a certain extent. We have built this myth of the, I mean, the kind of superhuman self. We can all be, become more and more resilient. All these ideas also associate with post-traumatic growth. We have to go through trauma because we come up on the other side stronger and more resilient. And this is bullshit. This is not always this true. This is really bullshit. Indeed, indeed. but I'm, I'm, I think you've said something very important that I want to take on and pass to uh, Vishwapani there, which is if it's not the propensity or vulnerability that's already there being yeah. brought out, then the intensive um, meditation is actually inducing something in some individuals, in some individuals, which is problematic. And I, I think, I yeah, think that's well, what you if, said. If, yes. Um, and I want so you to again, take yes, that up if you the, would. The literature, the literature is, is again precarious, but for instance, if you look at across a number of studies, you find that there's an average percentage um, of having an adverse event. And most of these have only to do with increases in stress and anxiety instead of a full-blown psychotic episode. But the average prevalence of this is about 20%. While we know that, for instance, if you go to see a psychotherapist, the average percentage of your condition deteriorating is about 5%. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what's going so on. What's going on. Yeah. But maybe some of the structures of self yeah. are protective and supportive. Um, yeah. I, the one, one really important distinction we need to make is uh, between different parts of what's going on in this, quotes mindfulness world. So on the one hand, we've got what's sometimes called the Vipassana movement or the insight meditation movement. And so this is where the, you, you go on a 10-day retreat, a nine-day retreat, and you're, you're meditating for eight hours a day, and it's very, very intensive. And I'm personally quite concerned about that model. It's very popular in, in, among people who go on retreats, and I'm very concerned that mindfulness is coming to vulnerable populations, and then they're pointed towards those kinds of retreats. I'm concerned about those retreats per se. I don't think retreats need to be like that. But that's, really, that's actually an old discussion. It's not the discussion that's raised by the, the kind of more recent um, spread of mindfulness courses. Um, on mindfulness courses, we, we take people quite carefully through a series of an eight-week course, generally speaking. And the course is designed for people. I mean, in the case of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, it's aimed at people who've had uh, multiple experiences of, of relapsing into depression. And so there's, there's a lot that's there about 
when there are difficult feelings, when there are difficult emotions, how can we relate to them? How can we experience them? And there's an, atti- there's an encouragement to bring an attitude of gentleness. The, the, the idea of non-judgmental uh, awareness is, impu- is helpful experientially, even though I've got some philosophical problems with it. We teach people about moving gently towards difficult feelings. And that is the most important part of the course, actually. That is the radical part of it, because we so much want to avoid difficult feelings, and so many uh, of uh, of the problems we have personally and we see in society are about the inability to manage difficult emotions, because if we don't do it with some degree of awareness, they won't go away, they'll drive our behavior and they'll drive our psychology in reactive, habitual, obsessive, compulsive, dysfunctional ways, yeah? yeah? Okay, now I, I wonder then if um, when Miguel told us the story of the person he met here who said she gave up meditating because she was always getting sad and having a lot of sort of tearful feelings, whether you think she's needing to feel those things and actually it's important to provide a structure and an opportunity to let her let some of that out. She needs to cry. Is that I think if someone is feeling sad, then they need, that's the reality. I don't know that she necessarily sit, needs to sit quietly in meditation to do that. Perhaps she needs a, a social context to work that out. Perhaps she needs psychotherapy. I don't, you know, meditation isn't a panacea. Um, but the, the principle of that generally speaking, I think it's helpful to, for people to, to be able to absorb, experience, assimilate their emotions. Yeah, I do think that. Yeah. And is there a level of care here that you recognize that Vishvapani is talking about that assuages some of your worries. I, I would say that it's completely different to do any use any kind of technique, including meditation, within a very controlled setting where you have someone who's mentally health trained with you, or someone who's very sensitive to this, or or doing it. I mean, in a way in which you do not have that protection. And let, let me give you the example of LSD as a form of psychotherapy, right? So we know that you can have very, very bad trips by taking psychoactive substances. However, and we've been experimenting with this again, if you have this within a really, really controlled setting, I mean, overall, most, I mean, the majority of people seem to have really, really pleasant and positive experiences that they would rate as some of the most significant experiences they've ever had. So, but again, having the social support, the scaffolding there, seems to be absolutely crucial. So I'm, I want to bring in Linda, because you were bringing out something that doesn't have that uh, scaffolding. I mean, there was the scaffolding of ritual and r- religion, but you also talked, and I want to come back to that, about somebody on the way to the fridge and thinking about what they're doing. And, and I, I, I think sometimes mindfulness captures people's imagination without all of these discussions by just thinking of those opportunities to suddenly feel very much in the present. I wonder whether there aren't um, non-religious and perhaps slightly uh, uh, less tricky situations for that, like um, contemplating art. There's one view of what it is to be fully human, which is a kind of post-Freudian one, which is that we've got this bubbling non-conscious and all these emotions, and the best thing is to let them out. The steam locomotive thing, you know, let them out, and uh, that's uh, don't bo- if you bottle them up, they'll mm. explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a traditional Christian view, mm. which was 
you should discipline the child, you should beat out the bad feelings, and you should distract yourself. Well, if I was depressed or bored, my mother used to say, go and clear wardrobe out, darling, <laughs> which is that technique, isn't it? Yes. Uh, distract yourself. Distraction can be a really good thing, and we shouldn't all be. So I still see if Midwell really thinks that we shouldn't let all our emotions out, and that we should often just distract ourselves and do something else, and not worry about our inner feeling. That's an interesting question, and you're you're absolutely right. The way contemplative traditions direct or org try to organize our feelings varies considerably. But on the whole, I think we can agree that they're not very concerned with getting in touch or acknowledge our feelings. Um, because, I mean, the realm of feelings is very confusing and it's counterproductive when you're trying to, ra to reach a certain end goal, which is most of the times in these traditions a radical transformation of the self. I mean, from the Christian Saint Paul, it's not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me, to, of course, I mean, the Buddhist and Hindu traditions. Uh, so I, I don't think that even within the psychodynamic tradition, I mean, th there is a lot of digging around, but I think the idea is to become whole, right? And there is quite a lot of self-awareness involved in this, I mean, and mindfulness, although they use the other words. But I think you, you s the starting point is that you're not ever aware of everything that is going on. And to be whole is an ongoing process. Right? It's not that you reach a certain endpoint and then that's it. I just want to ask what the end state is. So either we're on the journey to being whole or you know, we are allowing some of those feelings out or we have those moments, they might be with art, where you know, you're, you're still and you're intensely aware of what, what you're experiencing right now. What does that point to? What, is, what does that do for us? What about our plans for action? What about the course of direction of our life? Well, mindfulness in, in Buddhism, which is really my frame of reference, is something that is the capacity to be aware of all of those issues and to find our way forward. And there is a sense of forward motion within, with, within the Buddhist notion of mindfulness, mindfulness of purpose we talk about. And particularly, particularly and this is where the, the subtlety comes in, in relation to our mental states and how different mental states arise and develop, how our minds create themselves. So Buddhism says that is what's happening all the time. Our, our mental states are, our minds are recreating themselves. And the ability to, to guide that is really what comes from mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And Linda, are you, are you satisfied with that answer or do you want more? I do a lot of interviewing people about their beliefs mm. and <laughs> Amazingly, the question that tried and tested it works brilliantly. If you ask people, what's the meaning of life? And there's a long pause, or 42, uh, and then people have an answer. And it's always fascinating, and it's deeply reflected, and it's very different for each person. And I think that we answer those things for ourselves, but I think these techniques help us perhaps can help us get to a more truthful answer for ourselves and divert us from other distractions, ideally. Reminds me of a remark that T.S. Eliot made. He got in a cab and the taxi driver said, oh, you're Mr. Eliot the poet? And he said, yes. And uh, the cab driver said, you know, I had Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher, Lord Russell, in my cab the other day. And I said to him, 
Oi, you're a philosopher, Lord Russell. What's the meaning of life? And you know, he couldn't tell me. <laughs> I think Elliot was rather too proud, was rather too proud of that remark. But thanks to all of you, and will you join me in thanking our speakers? find out how the search for the self will be one of the central ideas at this year's festival, I caught up with Robin, one of the producers behind How the Light Gets In. Is the self and our undeniable inner experience just a byproduct of our brains? Or is this idea just driven by the desire to uphold a purely material universe? This year we have a great lineup of speakers who will be going in search of the self. Author of A Field Guide to Reality, Joanna Cavenna, Oxford University metaphysician, Jan Westerhoff, Philosopher Sylvia Jonas and author of The Ego Trick, Julian Bergini, will be joining us to ask whether the self is an illusion. Find out if science can eradicate the self and still make sense of who we are and get your tickets now. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. To be at the centre of debates like this, you can get your ticket now for How the Light Gets In, Hey 2019. Philosophy for Our Times listeners can also get 20% off their ticket price by using discount code PODCAST20 at the checkout. That's discount code PODCAST20 for 20% off your ticket price. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Miguel Farias, Vishwapani Blomfield, and Linda Woodhead. Please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating so other people can find us. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode, and of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.